Well, I'm going to do our scripture reading from Colossians. So if you want to grab a Bible or grab one of the Red Pew Bibles, we'll be reading Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. It's on page 985 in the uh, Red Pew Bibles. All right, starting at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A while ago, I was in a sermon. I was teasing my kids that you know they didn't know how to read books because they'd open the book and then they'd swipe it to make the page move, and then they'd wonder like what was happening. And I was making fun of that. But today, I had I have to go to paper because I have some technical difficulties, and I found myself doing that. I swipe <laughs> I swiped my paper, um, so I, I shouldn't make fun of them. Uh, let's pray. God, we are thankful for your church. We are thankful for your word. We ask, God, for your spirit to reveal to us the things we need to hear and to act upon. And pray for true transformation of our lives, that we would be changed people because you desire us to be more and more into your image and to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I, <clears throat> I, I love these... Uh, last sections of Paul's letter, um, some people may find it kind of boring that it's just a bunch of names, um, but I actually like it because it actually gives us a, a deeper glimpse into who Paul was and his relationships with these friends. Because, uh, you know, the, the first two chapters of Colossians was more about um, the laying down the foundation and the groundwork for basic Christian doctrine. And then when he gets into chapter 3 and 4, he gets more into the practical applications of that doctrine um, and, until you get to verse 7, and then he starts mentioning these people, and Tychicus and Onesimus, whom we talked about last week. And that big idea from last week was that we can't do life alone, that we need each other in doing this kingdom work and living this life together. We'll be re-emphasizing that today as we look at six new characters um, this morning. You know, and when we're studying Christianity, especially early Christianity, uh, Paul gets a lot of credit, right? He, he traveled tens of thousands of miles over the years of ministry and ministered to thousands of people and wrote all these letters that the Christian church now sees as canon. And he gets all this credit, which, which he deserves. I mean, he did a lot of work. Um, but I think something we sometimes fail to realize is that he didn't do all of this by himself. Um, there, there were actually a lot of people that had their hands in helping Christianity flourish and thrive to what it is today. And being that Thanksgiving just passed, Paul was definitely someone who was thankful for this team, 
just as we as a church are so thankful for all of you and how you contribute to this church with your generosity and your prayers and your faithfulness and your service, that we wouldn't be able to be here for the last 18 years as a church, not in this particular building, but as a church for almost two decades ministering in the most de-churched, unchurched region of the United States. Um, thank you for that. And I shared with you that um, we're in the process of purchasing the facilities here. So this building, the community center across the street, as well as the parking lot. And so we're in escrow. We're kind of going through inspection phases, or we're kind of going through that now. And so we're definitely going to still need your help moving forward. Um, I shared last week that we were part of this legacy, uh, a beautiful legacy, actually, that started even before this building was built, which was built in 1926. The cornerstone is right out there. And it started out as the Swedish Baptist Church. So Swedish immigrants came over to San Francisco. And then they decided, hey, we're going to go over to Oakland. We're going to make our way east. And they had in their mind that they were going to continue moving the gospel eastward, which is why Julia Morgan designed the building the way she did here, this ship and that sail, this blue thing, going east. And the church, the Swedish Baptist Church, then became Lakeside Baptist Church. Lakeside Baptist Church went on to plant various churches throughout the Bay Area, Fair Oaks in Concord, Golden Hills in Antioch, uh, Bay Farm in Alameda, uh, and I think there's a, a couple others that kind of are granddaughter churches from those churches. So they always had it in their mind that the gospel was going to move forward. Lakeside Baptist Church hosted seven refugee churches here uh, during um, the Vietnam War, after the Vietnam War, a Vietnamese church got established here, a Hmong church, a, a Mien church, a Cambodian church, a Spanish-speaking church. Uh, so various churches got established right here, and now we've been given this baton to continue ministry here that has been here for almost a century that we've kind of been tapped on the shoulder to say, maybe it's you. To continue on and we do continue on with the refugee ministry and with the homelessness that's growing out here in Oakland we've taken a big step forward in ministering to our homeless community um, great things happening in ministry here and so we can't do this alone um, many of you have contributed over the past 18 years to what we are today and so this idea that we need each other is, is so true in a practical sense for us, but also just looking at this letter that Paul is commending, he is recognizing that he couldn't do it himself. And so here are these lists of people, eight in total. We looked at two last week. We'll look at six this morning. That it wasn't just Paul and it wasn't just his, the disciples that were with Jesus, and so let's take a look at Romans 16, just as to, to see an example of this, of how many people are actually involved just in this one letter. Romans 16, starting in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of, of any and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, Priscilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles that give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. 
Greet my beloved, beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. And that list goes on and on and on, all the way to verse 15, showing us that we need each other to do God's work. Now back to our text here in Colossians 4. You notice that three of the six mentioned here are of Jewish descent. The other three are, are Gentiles. The first one mentioned here, uh, Jewish descent, is Aristarchus, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, we do find Aristarchus in several places in the Bible, um, Philemon being one of them. We know that he's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, that he devoted himself to Paul's ministry of the gospel, supported Paul. And in the Bible, we find Aristarchus in these roles of being a support, that he's, he's serving. And we find him in a few places, but in all the places that we find him, we actually find him in mess. Like he's always in trouble. Right? So he's always in, in the middle of things. He, he's always in these really challenging parts. But that's something, there's something in that that it tells us that he's, he's willing to put himself there. He's, he's always game to do ministry. He's, he's a risk taker for the gospel. And some of you are like this, and our church wouldn't exist if it weren't for some of you being Aristarchuses. And that whatever the church is doing, your game. Yeah, let's go for it. Let's do this thing. And you're willing to take the risk. And you're willing to see what happens in ministry. Now, just to get a little bit of background on Aristarchus, let's take a look at Acts chapter 19, where Luke records for us uh, who all these people are. Starting in verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion, and, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Mar Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So what's happening here is there's this riot in Ephesus. Aristarchus is drug into the theater, which is still there. You can go to Ephesus today. You can see this huge amphitheater. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful structure. And, um, and his friends are being dragged in there. And, and then Paul's friends are holding Paul back because they don't want him to get hurt or, or get in trouble or whatever to rush into this theater. But who's being dragged into the theater? It's Aristarchus. And so a little background as to why this is being done is that the Ephesians, um, they worship this god named Artemis. And Artemis uh, had a lot of money surrounding the worship of Artemis, just like Christians have taken advantage of the worship of God with music and clothes and whatever else. That There's this whole industry in regards to this, right? Same thing. Artemis had the same thing. Demetrius was this silversmith who made shrines, silver, silver shrines for people, and he made a lot of money making these shrines so that people would put them in their homes and, and, and do the Artemis worship and things like that. So he, he gathers together the other people who have business in regards to this worship of Artemis, and he says, you know what, this guy Paul, he's come into town, and he's converted a lot of people into their God, and it's hurting our business, and it's going to hurt our business even more. Not only that, but He's kind of like dragging down Artemis. And we like Artemis. We, we worship Artemis. So, so let's put an end to this and let's, let's get him out of here. 
So they drag Gaius, they drag Aristarchus in there and for preaching the gospel. And so right now they're in a lot of danger. People are, are cheering on uh, Artemis. And, and so right in the middle of trouble, right? Right in the thick of things. Pick up a story later in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. And where do we find Aristarchus there? And it reads this. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him, Paul, by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus. He's there again. Aristarchus, riot in Ephesus. Now there's a plot to kill Paul. He's right in the thick, thick of it. And then this very, this, this danger, he's always in the middle of things. This is Aristarchus. He's, he's, he's willing, right? Um, I've always wondered what Aristarchus looked like. Because, like, was Aristarchus big like Billy? Because when I'm with Billy and we're doing ministry, I feel confident. Like, you know... They got the homeless ministry, sharing whatever, like sketchy people, whatever. I really don't care. Like, you know, I got a good backup. Like, yeah, I, don't have to, I don't have to worry about a thing. I can say whatever I want, and nothing's going to happen to me. He might be drugged into the theater, but I'll be cool. Right? <laughs> so I, I just wonder if Paul felt the same way. Like, I got Aristarchus. You know, I'm good. He's just not, not afraid to mix it up for the gospel and do we have people like that in our life you know people who are with you through thick and thin they're just you know they're loyal to you and faithful to you they don't shy away from things they're they're ready to dive into those things with you and as a church and as a pastor i'm just so thankful for the aristarchuses of the church they're just they're just willing to get in there you know, when, when times get tough, which times have been tough at our church. We, we've had history, just like any other place, where people stick things through and, and they, they keep going. Now, Aristarchus's troubles aren't over. Um, hop over to Acts 27. In Acts 27, a lot of people think about, oh, the shipwreck, the shipwreck, Paul, poor Paul. Guess who was with him? We, we don't really think about this all the time, do we? But he was there, and he was also on that island of Crete where Paul got bitten by that viper, and then they were thinking like, oh, this guy's not a just man. He escaped that shipwreck, but he's gonna, about to die, and they were waiting for him to swell up, and, and it never happened. They were, oh, he must be a god. Aristarchus is there too. Starting over here, chapter 27, verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. <laughs> Riot, death plot, shipwreck. This dude is always there. And so the question I have for Paul is, stop bringing him with you places. <laughs> like, like, this guy's like a bad luck charm. Like, don't stop bringing this guy. But in all seriousness, I think it was just... Paul was getting into these things anyway, and Aristarchus is there. I'm game, Paul. Whatever God has for us, like I, I'm willing to do it. I, I, I got your back. 
whether it's an angry mob, whether it's these religious people who want to kill you, whether it's imminent death by a storm. I don't care. I'm there. And just like some of you, ladies and gentlemen, like committed to serving God, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. I'm committed. I'm loyal. I'm faithful. I'm doing this. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, just so that you can feel a little bit about this shipwreck, uh, I want to just go through Acts 27, just pull out several verses from it, just so you get an idea of how dangerous this was and how perilous it was. Starting in verse 4 here. The winds were against us, 7 through 10. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, coasting along it with difficulty, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous. This is Paul saying this. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Going through verses 14 through 18, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Jump down to verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Lastly, verse 41. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Aristarchus was in there. He was all part of this. Riot in Ephesus, death plot, shipwreck. And ready for whatever may come along as long as it serves God's character. And maybe some of you can relate to him. And maybe some of you can't because the character we're going to look at next is actually really, really different. It's Mark. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, and it reads, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, uh, in order to get a background on him, you have to look at the book of Acts as well, and look, look back to Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, we read that Mark's mother actually hosts uh, prayer meetings in her house and the early church met there and in verse 12 it reads this when he realized this he went to the house of Mary this is talking about Peter the mother of John whose name was Mark where many were gathered and were praying so Mark has been involved in ministry in in the Christian church from the very very early start of it and he was right there in Jerusalem when Peter was imprisoned and he's coming out of prison. He's making his way over to Mark's mom's house because he knows that they were there. And he was there to witness a lot of miracles. He is related to one of the leaders of the early church, Barnabas. And so these guys, him in particular, knows a lot about church. He grew up with all the stories. He grew up seeing miracles. He grew up with a mom that was a faithful follower. And then in verse 25, he gets this opportunity to minister with his cousin and to minister with Saul, Paul. Not only this, he's also been building a relationship with Peter this whole time too, a leader of the church, because Peter goes to his mom's house there to, he knows that there's a prayer meeting. 
Then you jump over to one chapter, ch chapter 13, and then this is what Mark's kind of known for um, in terms of this division, and it's in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Mark was not like Aristarchus. Aristarchus would have been like, yeah, we're here. Let's go. Let's go through Perga. Mark, on the other hand, not so much. Why not? Because Perga is kind of like how a lot of people perceive Oakland. You know, you're coming over from Marin. <laughs> and you talk to people from Marin and you ask them, like, uh, so what do you think about Oakland? I would never go to Oakland. I would never go to Oakland. If I were to go to a Warriors game, I would drive down the peninsula and come back up to the <laughs> south. I would not go through Oakland. Because it was a place that was known to be dangerous. It was a place known to be crime-ridden, Perga. Perga, this mountainous region that in order to get there, you had to cross this mountain overpass and bandits were waiting for you just to rob you of your stuff. It was known for that. So Mark gets there and he's like, nuh-uh. Not doing that. And Paul's like, what do you mean? Where's Aristarchus when you need him? Like, we should have brought him. And so this starts to cause problems. Hop on over to verse 37, chapter 15 of Acts. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Cy Cyprus was more like um, Palo Alto or something like that. You know, it's not, not like Perga. You know. Just kidding, I really don't know. It's probably more like Hawaii, though. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now you look at verse 39. Arose a sharp disagreement. Not just a disagreement, a sharp one. I bring this up because this happens with good teams, good churches, good leaders, good people. Yes, we, we all need each other. We all need each other, but it doesn't mean that we always agree. Just like in your households, husband and wife, like you're good people, you love each other, but you don't always agree. And we do need to learn how to work with each other, how to reconcile when, when it's needed, but we don't always agree. Now, why was there such a sharp disagreement? Well, you got to remember the relationship between Barnabas and Mark. Who are they to each other? Cousins. Cousins. They're, they're blood. They're family. Now, Mark is um, this guy that probably deserves second chances like everybody else, but Paul's also probably of a different personality. He's probably more accustomed to like running with people like Aristarchus more than a Mark, like Man, that guy's just going to slow me down. I don't need that. And so there's this disagreement because Barnabas is a very gracious guy. His name means son of encouragement. And so he's probably even more gracious to his own family, to his own cousin. And he's thinking like, how in the world are you not going to accept him? Why? We'll get to this a little later, but think about who brought Paul into the early Christian church in Jerusalem. It was Barnabas. And so he's thinking, I brought you in. You can't let my cousin in? What's going on there? 
So this thing that happened between Acts chapter 15 all the way to Colossians 4, something happened where Mark made a turnaround. That there was this disagreement in Acts chapter 15, but then come along Colossians 4, things have been restored to where Paul wrote, welcome him. Now Paul writes, welcome him, because it needs to be clarified to everybody who encounters Mark, because everyone who encounters Mark probably thinks, here comes the quitter. Here comes the guy that uh, scared a cat, not willing to go through Perga. Now, there might be someone here listening to this message where you're, you may be thinking, I've messed up and God's not going to use me. Or I've, I've just done something that you know, I, I can't be used anymore. Or maybe you're like Mark where you just grew up in the church and you know all the stories and you know everything and, and your family's Christians and you know a lot about Christianity, but somewhere along the line you kind of stepped away and maybe you're just hanging out here, but you're really in your heart and in your mind you're thinking, well, yeah, but I'm not going to be like fully used. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a relationship with God, but I'm, I'm not going to be used by God. I need to remind you that restoration is for you. That you look at this beautiful, beautiful picture of restoration in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And this is Paul's farewell letter to Timothy before he's beheaded and killed. It reads this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. And who does he ask for? Get Mark. Out of all people, not the Aristarchus, not anybody, he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. It's amazing. Out of all people he could have asked for, he asked for Mark. And I, I think part of it is because Paul realized what God did for him. That God was able to change his heart towards somebody who hurt him. And that Paul was able to change Mark, who used to be this guy that was scared and not willing to go forward in ministry. And how God changed his life. And how God changed Barnabas to be able to say, you know what, Barnabas was the one that brought me into the church in Jerusalem. And even he forgave me for rejecting his cousin. So Mark's this beautiful picture for Paul of how God restores and reconciles. And God does that for you and me. No matter how far we've ventured away, that he can restore relationships not just with him, but with other people. Many of you are familiar with my story, with my fractured relationship with my dad, who I was estranged from for over eight years. Didn't talk to him. And yet God restored our relationship. I didn't get to see him in Southern California over Thanksgiving, but we had a really great time over FaceTime and talking with my family. And it's crazy. I would have never thought that that would be possible in my late teens and early 20s. Just never thought. I thought that relationship was done. And here's the crazy thing, is that that, that sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, I, I can just imagine from Barnabas' perspective how hurt he was that Paul wasn't able to bring in his cousin Mark because it was Barnabas, who brought him into the early church. 
There was Paul persecuting the early church. He gave the thumbs up for Stephen to be killed, stoned to death. He's the one that's saying, like, you know what? I'm going to go on the Damascus Road. I'm going to catch every single one of those people who follow the way. I'm going to jail them. I'm going to torture I'm going to do whatever I'm allowed to do to them. And then it's Barnabas who brings him into the Jerusalem church and says, like, hey, this guy's cool. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. This is Paul. He's attempting to get into the early church. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So you can imagine Barnabas' hurt when, like, you can't take my cousin in? What, what, what did I do for you? You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. Barnabas is so cool. Because Barnabas is also the guy that brought his cousin back in. But you'll notice that it wasn't just Barnabas who brought Paul in. Because we can't do this alone. We, don't, we, we all need each other. Because who was, before Paul, who was before Barnabas? You have to go to Acts 9. And you find a character by the name of Ananias. Ananias is the guy who was told by the Lord to go seek out Paul. And he's like, uh-uh. That guy's a killer. He's going to throw me in jail. He's like, no, go to him. Help him regain his sight. Help him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ananias must have been thinking, man, God, you're nuts. Like, this is crazy. But you can see how God doesn't just use one person. He uses multiple people, even in the restoration of Paul. Ananias is there. Barnabas is there. And when we're looking at Mark, it's not just Barnabas who restores him to usefulness. Because who came knocking on Mark's mother's door? It was Peter. So Peter obviously had a relationship with Mark and his family, you know, knocking on his door, knowing that they're going to be there. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Look at how Peter referred to Mark at the end of this verse. Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Peter referred to Mark as his son. This is just so amazing, right? Because it's... It, to restore Mark back, it wasn't just Barnabas, it's Barnabas and it's Peter. And this is something that's amazing about God, is that those experiences that you go through that are just so terrible, and you're thinking like, man, thank God that he rescued me from this, this life of addiction, this life of living, this lifestyle, this life of whatever, these life, this life of bad choices. And what does God do with those things? More often than not, you meet someone who has the same issues that you used to have and that you can minister to them. And so you're, you're, we're talking about Mark here who is feeling like such a loser, feeling like such a quitter, and who ministers to him? Peter. Who better to minister to Mark than the quitter of quitters? If anyone knew about being restored and being used by God after quitting, it was Peter. You remember Peter in Caiaphas' court? 
rooster crowed. Jesus looks at him. If anybody knew, it would be Peter. There's no one more experienced to let Mark know God's not done with you. I messed up bad, and look what God did with me. So you can imagine these conversations between Peter and Mark, how awesome they would have been. Like Peter just sharing like all his failures, those three years of walking with Jesus, and then God still using him and restoring him and talking about God's grace and his patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, all in regards to his failures. And Mark, just this person who's just getting restored because he's hearing these stories of God's redemption and restoration after Peter's failures, and he's just being used powerfully by God now. And he sees Uncle Peter curing people and doing miracles and all this kind of stuff. Mark was used very powerfully. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. And who was his primary source? His eyewitness primary source was Peter. He wrote all that down. So we have Aristarchus, this courageous servant who's just game for anything, and then we have Mark who quit but gets restored. And maybe you don't relate to either one, but maybe these next four, you'll relate to one of them. So here, Jesus, who is called Justice. Who, do, who is this guy? We really don't know. We don't know much about Jesus called Justice because the other two justices mentioned in the Bible aren't this one. They're different justices. This is all we hear about Jesus who is called Justice. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And so all we know is that he was there with Paul and that he was a comfort to Paul. And Paul writes, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have comfort. They have been a comfort to me. So only Aristarchus, Mark, and here Justice, the only three Jews that are with him. And this is probably really, really important and touching to Paul because when Paul first started his ministry, he really wanted to minister to Jews. That, that was his heart. Those were his people. He really wanted to minister to them. And here he's thinking like, man, I only have three. It's only Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And then Justice isn't mentioned much at all. Like, we don't know anything about justice. And so maybe this is someone listening to this message too, in that you're here, but you don't know what else you're doing in terms of ministry. Um, You're just kind of here. That's great. You're here. And personally, I'm very thankful for you for being here the Sunday after Thanksgiving. That's great. Thank you. It's a great comfort to me. Because in years past, you know, when it was more college age, uh, back when we started like 18 years ago, we'd we'd be doing ministry, and the senior pastor at the time would be preaching to like four people. And uh, I'd have to come back early to like, serve on a Sunday, I'm like, man, you you had me come back from L.A. to visit my family to serve these four people. But, um, so thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank God you're here. How many people have made the choice to be at church the Sunday after Thanksgiving? 
And yet you decided. You, you decided to do this. And so justice um, being one of those few Jews that Paul was able to minister to. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul writes this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is how badly he wanted to minister to Jews, his fellow kinsmen. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And here Paul was. I only can minister to three. There's only three of them with me. But justice was one of them. And out of all the Jews that Paul attempted to reach, at this point, of, at this point in Colossians, there's only three of them. And justice was one of the ones who came forward for Jesus. You're here. And maybe you're, you feel like you're not doing enough or maybe you're, whatever that feeling is but you're here. You're present. Justice's name means righteousness. And amongst all the things you can choose to do on a Sunday morning, you chose what I think is the right thing, to worship the Lord, to be in fellowship here, to pray. You didn't choose the most convenient thing. You didn't choose the most comfortable thing, but the right thing, and you're here. Now, something that Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice all had in common is that they comforted Paul, which isn't all that common of a thing. So there are only three of them mentioned here, so it tells us that it's rare. It's, it's indeed a rare thing because ask yourself, how many people in your life bring you comfort versus how many people in your life bring you grief? Amen? That's life. That's how it is. So when you find those people who are able to bring comfort to you, cherish them. Moving on to Epaphras, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, and that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, if you can imagine Paul kind of almost being jealous of Epaphras because Epaphras, we find in Colossians 1.7, is the one who is a Colossian and brings the gospel to Colossae. And he's able to share and have a church there and Paul's wanting the Jews to receive Christ and he's having the hardest time converting Jews to Christ. And yet here's Epaphras and he must just kind of live through him almost and say like, oh man, that's so great. Epaphras came to faith in Jesus Christ and he's returning back to Colossae and he's evangelizing people, discipling people there. And then when he runs into some problems, he goes back to Paul and says, hey, Paul, this stuff is going on in the church. And that's why Paul writes this letter. And Paul writes this letter and he writes basic Christian doctrine, chapters 1 and 2, the practicality of it, verses 3 to 4. And then he goes and he's talking about Epaphras here. He recognized him as a servant of Jesus Christ. And that he, Paul also recognized that Epaphras agonized in prayer for the church. And this was something that set Epaphras apart from these other guys that are mentioned here. 
is that he struggled on their behalf in prayers. He was on the front line of their ministry. He was working hard for them. And it's something to be said for people who are from an area, encounter Jesus Christ, and then they want to go back. And they have this innate feeling and desire and passion to reach their people. They have something different in them as to why they want to reach the people where they're from. Uh, this was this is Billy. I, I don't know if you guys know Billy's story. Billy met Jesus Christ here, and he's Irish. He's like, I need to go back to Ireland, and started ministering to homeless heroin addicts in Ireland for several years before recruited him to come here and help help us with our homeless ministry. But there's something in those people where they they gotta go back. You got to go back. Luke, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now, Luke was Paul's physician, uh, quite possibly Paul's best friend. You take a, a look at that letter, that last letter again to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. So only Luke is with Paul at the end of his life. And so Luke was one of his closest friends. Luke was his caregiver, this faithful friend who was there to minister to all of, Luke, uh, of Paul's kind of health problems. Now Luke was used mightily also. He wrote the gospel of Luke and he writes this entire history in the book of Acts to tell us about all these other guys. Otherwise we probably wouldn't know all that much about Aristarchus. Probably wouldn't know all that much about any of those folks that happened to be mentioned in the early church. And so here's Luke, someone who hung out with Paul for a very significant amount of time and who got to know Paul really well. And yes, without Paul, might not have been able to write the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. But flip that around. How far would Paul be able to go if he didn't have his doctor with him taking care of him? How far would he have gone? in terms of being able to minister and just living. Without Luke, who knows what Paul would have been prevented in doing, in writing all these letters? See, Luke had this ability to be used by God as a physician. And some of you may have a skill or a gift or an ability that is going to be used for God's purposes. And maybe you're thinking like, oh, I'm not a missionary, I'm not a minister, I'm not doing these things in the church. God will use you with whatever abilities you have now to grow the kingdom. So wherever you find yourself, you're needed just as Luke was needed for Paul in his ministry. There's no way Paul could have done what he did without Luke. Lastly, Demas, verse 14 mentions a, a guy named Demas. And at the time when Paul was writing this letter to the Colossians. He had no idea, probably, that Demas was going to fail him. And again, Paul writes this later letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It reads this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. How many people do we know have fell in love with the world and they've just deserted the gospel? They've deserted Jesus. It's, it's many. It's too many. 
And for each one of us, where each person there kind of hurts us individually, imagine the collective to where God sees all this for them to walk away when he's the one to offer restoration, to offer rescue, to offer significance. But this is the risk that we take when we love people, when we recognize that we don't do life alone. And Paul risked friendship, and Demas was one of those friendships that that really hurt him. And yet we still need to keep extending care. We still need to extend risk in order to serve the kingdom. And so who are we helping in their faith in Christ? And it's always a risk because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who's going to turn out like Mark, and we don't know who's going to turn out like Demas. So we have Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, all so different yet used by God in various ways in different seasons. And maybe you can relate to one of them or maybe you can't. Maybe you can relate to the relationships and how they played out. Maybe you can't. Either way, we do know that we can't serve the kingdom of God by ourselves, that we all need other people to accomplish the greater things of the kingdom of God. And just in the spirit of thanksgiving, continuing with this week, I I am thankful. The leadership here is thankful for you and how you contribute to our church. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled that you would use us for ministry in, in this place that isn't the friendliest places of places to share your love. God, we ask that you would equip us with courage like you did with Aristarchus to just kind of be game for anything. And for those of us who aren't quite there yet and we're like Mark, we are hopeful that we'll be turned around. And then there are just some folks that we're here, God, and we just don't know, just like a justice. And I pray, God, that you would bless them. Thank you for them being here. And guys like Epaphras who are just working hard and praying And those like Luke, who are using their skills and their gifts in amazing ways for your kingdom. And I ask God for those Demases out there, that you would make them into marks, that you would draw them back in. In Jesus' name, amen.